And we're going to wrap up our chapter here this morning with Acts chapter 14. And I'm going to read from the NET, the New, the New English Translation here this morning. It says this, After they had proclaimed the good news in that city, actually, I'm going to go a verse before. I forgot I was going to do that. But after the disciples had surrounded him, he got up and went back into the city. On the next day, he left with Barnabas for Derby. After they had proclaimed the good news in that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium and Antioch. They strengthened the souls of the disciples and encouraged them to continue in the faith saying, well, we must enter the kingdom of God through many persecutions. When they had appointed elders for them in the various churches with prayer and fasting, they entrusted them to the protection of the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Adaliah. From there they sailed back to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had now completed. When they arrived and gathered the church together, they reported all the things that God had done with them and that he had opened a door of faith for the Gentiles. So they spent considerable time with the disciples. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for this trip that Paul spent in Derby. Uh, Lord, we, we pray, Lord, that you would open up our minds and our hearts right now, Lord, to perceive what you are saying to us, your church, and how, Lord, we can be, we can be encouraged to endure in our own faith and as, a, as your church here in Belgrade. We, we pray your presence to open up your word to us here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> So before we got married, Amberlynn and I went to uh, what is kind of a marriage counseling slash like marriage. It was a group group the group there. I wouldn't say group therapy, but uh, um, but uh, group group um, premarital advice, <laughs> uh, right? So when we got married, um, they had this whole class. Um, that we were that we went through it was like six to eight weeks or so and part of it was a one-on-one counseling we took this like quiz and we we got us this like had this whole like assessment and stuff and found out that i was the one with the rose-colored glasses in our relationship you know i was the one that was like oh this is gonna be wonderful everyone has no faults at all you know (laughs) and uh and realizing that through the marriage um you know, premarital counseling and the premarital counseling that I've given myself uh, with other couples that I've that I've married, um, which I absolutely love. Mar- you know, marrying people like officiating weddings is like my favorite thing ever. It's like so much fun. I love. It's not like you know my favorite thing ever, but I love it. I love officiating weddings. It's so much fun. But the number one thing I always tell people when they're dating or when they're engaged or when they're about to be married is the number one thing that makes the first year so hard is that you have no awareness that you have unmet expectations or that you will have unmet expectations, that you're entering into this marriage with all of these expectations. This is what it's going to be like. This is who I'm going to be like. This is how this person is going to be like. 
Right, all the things that, like you know, they, they always say, like the things that that you uh, loved most about them are going to become the things that annoy you the most about them. Right, so we don't expect to go in expecting to be angry about this or about that, about the way that they load the dishwasher, about the way that they <coughs> that they chew their food, about the way that they cook their food, about the way that they walk, about the way that they talk, or by the way that they sleep. Because going into into marriage, we don't know. We don't know these things until we're there, until the the shackles have been put on, you know. <laughs> Which is why a lot of times the first year of marriage is so difficult for married couples, is because they enter into marriage and enter into life together with all these expectations, and they're conf- you know confronted with all of these re- of the reality of 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 life. And how it's not necessarily as they expected. But the thing about marriage, and that's why I think some people are either scared of marriage or it takes them a while to get married, is because of fear. Because they've heard the, the horror stories. Because their parents have been divorced. Because they're, they've already experienced divorce themselves. Because they've come from a broken household. Because they see the world in it and, and the brokenness of, of relationships. But really, the, the, a lot of times, people just go into marriage just, woo, warm fuzzies, you know, rainbows. They don't realize that it takes work. And by work, it means, I mean, devotion. You must, before you get married, you have to count the cost. It costs you your freedom, in a sense. Like, you can't just go and do whatever the heck you want. You must have a relationship with your spouse to discuss life. And going on and doing these things or, you know, together or apart or what are we going to do with the kids? And it, it's now you, t- you have to work through it. It's not bad. It's not you're being shackled down. Your freedom's lost. Well, now you've got someone to share your life with. Now you've got someone to, ex- to share these incredible adventures and experiences with. Their marriage can be wonderful and be beautiful. It can also be devastating for many as well. Uh-oh. <laughs> Is it going to come back? <laughs> Maybe. Pause. <laughs> Whoa. There went. Okay, but so it's it's about counting the cost before going into it. It's about like well, the conversation that Amberlynn and I had when we before we got married is that you're stuck with me <laughs> through good, through bad, through whatever. Like you're stuck with me. Like we we're not even going to talk or even mention the D word. We're never going to talk about divorce. We're never going to even joke about it. We're not going to make lightly of it. We're not going to make fun of separating. Never. That is not going to be a part of our household. That's not going to be a part of the way that we speak to each other or about each other. 
We've made the decision to stay engaged, to stay focused, to stay married, no matter what. We take our vows exceedingly serious. And that, like, we don't want to just joke about it to where it becomes a possibility. Because you don't, something doesn't become a possibility until you make light of it. That's why sin was, integra- was integ- introduced into our culture through comedy shows. And then it was accepted by culture. When you laugh at something, you accept it. But you count the cost before you get married. Now great crowds were traveling with him. So he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man started to build and wasn't able to finish. Ah, sucker. Alan version. <clears throat> but our faith, like a marriage, is a marathon. It's not a sprint. If you don't just get into the faith and you're super excited, woohoo, yay, awesome, and you think that that's going to sustain you. It's a marathon. It's long, ter- long term. This is the, for the rest of your eternity, is our faith. It's making a decision to change your eternity. It cannot be entered into lightly. Our faith is a marriage. We make a covenant with the Lord God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and with His church. Because guess what? Look around you, in this, around this room. You want, you want Jesus? You're stuck with us too. Hallelujah. <laughs> and I was thinking about it. Like, growing up in the church, I mean, how many, how, just a variety of different kinds of peoples and personalities are in the church. And how you, you meet people, you know, rich, medium, middle class, poor, and everything in between, and political people, and very like, in rednecks, and everyone in between, and like, just a variety of different people. People like rap music, and hip hop, and country, and, 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 and polka and you know, <laughs> it's just like we are a weird hodgepodge of people yes, amen. a beautiful menagerie, menagerie. of Literally. God's glorified and beloved people and every single one of us are equal in God's sight we are the church of Jesus Christ so if you love God guess what you get us to you get to have us. Amen. Now you have to put up with us. Amen. We get a family. And not just this church, but like C3 and the Table Church and Journey Church and the River Church and Crossings Community Church in Livingston. You get the whole big C worldwide brother and brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. There's millions of us. You have a family millions of people including the crazy aunts and uncles and that weird cousin <laughs> this last week I got the, the privilege of of, uh, of doing my, my Mimi's funeral out in Indiana and I got to see a woman who was steadfast loyal, faithful 
Not, not like, like the most spiritual. I mean, she was Methodist after all. But she was loving and faithful to her God, her family, her friends, and her community. <clears throat> what will be spoken of you in 20, 30, 40, 50, some of the 60 years at your funeral? Because I, I got to speak, part of it was, you know, when, when, he, when you read through Proverbs 31, you oftentimes think of a, a woman in, maybe in, the, in, you know, in her 20s or 30s, maybe, maybe as much as the 40s, kind of in the middle of, of raising children, in the middle of a ho- having a household full of children and, and family. But what does a Proverbs 31 woman look like at her funeral? Someone who's been faithful through children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren steadfast and going to Sunday school to the very last of her capabilities. Being a part of the church and worshiping the Lord as as much as, and as faithfully as possible. And that was my meaning. Our faith is a marathon. Our faith is a covenant. It is a lifelong covenant. And that's the point here this morning is that we encourage endurance. That's the whole point of of this passage and the point of the church, is to encourage endurance through persecutions and disappointments. Remain in God's love and the joy of the Spirit. That's why we exist as a church. That's why God gave us a family. He knew that we wouldn't be able to do this and shouldn't do this on our own. That was the point of, of Israel, is of, of them being a nation, to be there with one another. That's the point of the church, local and lo- the local church, as well as the greater worldwide church, is to encourage endurance in one another through the persecutions and disappointments of life. To remain in God's love and the joy of the Spirit. <coughs> so let's look at our passage here this morning. Paul and Barnabas, they continued on. Nothing and no one can stop the advance of the gospel. Nothing and no one can stop the advance of the gospel. Neither the gates of hell can prevail against it, nor the persecutions from people. It's kind of like the Princess Bride. Death cannot stop the gospel. All it can do is delay it for a while. Paul and Barnabas weren't swayed by the suffering they experienced in Antioch, Iconium, and now, especially in Lystra. They even went back into the town after he was stoned, and then the next day he went off to Derby. And that's why I think this is a picture that I wanted to, why I wanted to say that last line, <coughs> that last sentence of that sentence before. It said he got up, went back into the city, and on the next day, he left with, Par- with, Bar- with Barnabas for Derby. This was a miraculous healing. We talked about this last week, but I'm going to add this a little bit at, at, at the beginning of ours. Paul was able to travel 60 miles after being stoned, and they thought he was dead. Which is why I, I believe that he really truly was dead. And not like the Princess, Bryce, uh, Princess Bride, only mostly dead. I think he was all dead. I mean, they knew how to kill people back then. 
Well, let's look at that. I mean, if you're, yeah, you, you're stoned. What does it mean to be stoned? This was brutal, you guys, and gruesome. Right? And everyone partook. Like, let, me, uh, let me see if I can find it again. Ha <laughs> ha. Here we go. Yeah. We're talking stones. Like full on stones being pelted at your head and at your body. This. Like, not, we're not talking like, you know, like, pew, pew, pew. We're talking like, like, fitching your palm will destroy you. And you didn't die immediately either. It took like 20, at least 20 minutes, if not up to two hours for you to die. Broken bones. Like, even your leg bones could be broken and shattered. Your ribs, especially because they're throwing it at you, you know, cracked skulls, internal bleeding, bloody on the outside, bloody on the inside, because you eventually die of blunt force trauma and internal bleeding. That's how you die. Brain concussion, your know, brain trauma, because they're throwing it at your head. <laughs> they actually talked about in, in, the, in the Mishnah, they would actually bury you up to your chest. And you, they would they pelt things at just this section of you, mostly your head. It was a horrific way to die. You know, cross crucifixion, stoned right underneath it. They knew how to tell us if someone was dead or not. They dragged his body outside the city. The church gathered around him. They would not have dragged him out of the city until they confirmed that he was dead. He was dead. <coughs> but he came back to life. In an instant, they gathered around him. Can you imagine? Like I said, the only person who came into, into Lystra with him was Barnabas. And so all the people who gathered around him were the new converts to Christianity, were new converts to the faith, to the way of Jesus. Can you imagine what this did to their faith? Wow! He like stood up immediately went with them, and then walked 60 miles to Derby. This was a church that immediately had great faith because they saw the miraculous right in front of their eyes. They saw God bring him back to life. And not only bring him back to life, but completely heal him. I believe that they watched his body be healed in, their, in front of their very eyes. That he saw the, 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 the ribcage go... As I've seen videos of the of, of this the, like the multi you know length legs and like you know, a guy like pulls it out and it becomes equal. You saw it be healed in front of your very eyes. People's eye you know eye eyesight be gained back. People who are paralyzed now or have had ALS now jumping and praising God. Imagine how much this would have encouraged the church in Lystra. The God who raised Paul completely from the dead and healed him was insurmountably more powerful than little little Zeus and little Hermes. These little impotent gods. And that was the God that they now worshipped. 
I mean, about Derby, Derby, we're not really told much. I mean, the, the, there's literally 14 words that tell us about the ministry in Derby. But Derby seems to have been a peaceful ministry that doesn't account for us any persecution, any pushback from the Jews. There may or may not even been a synagogue in the town, which could be why it was so peaceful. They didn't have Jewish opposition. But it was, as it said, what does it say here? It says they took the, they proclaimed the good news in that city and had made many disciples. It was very fruitful. It was a very fruitful ministry. But that's why I used this, this, uh, this image here <coughs> as the graphic for this morning. I feel like this was kind of a, kind of a relaxing part for Paul. Being able to sit back and, and enjoy and recount what all God had just done from Cyprus to Antioch to Iconium to Lystra, all the sufferings and persecutions, but all of the faces of the disciples. Kind of like when I'm preparing a sermon, I, I scroll through your faces and think, how does God want to preach to that person? What does God want to speak to that person? What does God want to say to, to that person? And I just scroll through your faces in my mind. And I pray through, what does God want to say to you? What does God want to say to us? And I feel like Paul's doing that. He's, you may be, I don't know if there's a lake or anything nearby, but he's sitting there just contemplating and remembering the faces of those who came to faith in Jesus along the way. And remembering them and praying for them and rejoicing over them. It was so fruitful and yet also a very peaceful time. Because we're also not talked about what it said, like Paul would later write about the persecutions and afflictions uh, when he writes to Timothy years later. And he only, he only says this about the persecution and afflictions, which, he, which happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. He doesn't name Derby. I think Derby was a place where God just refreshed him, refreshed the ministry. Preserved him from persecutions, and but made it a very fruitful location. And actually, there's disciples that we that we get to to see from Derby later on, possibly Gaius, at least from that area. Uh, but he, he's mentioned that he's from Derby, that Timothy, who he writes the book of Timothy too, and who follows him later on in his ministry, is a disciple from Derby. Gaius only. Uh, one of the only two people that Paul names that he actually got to physically baptize. I can imagine him like, you know, like, man, I need to be refreshed. I, I want to do the baptizing this time, guys. Barnabas, is it cool if I do it this time? I really want to baptize this guy. And so he, he gets to baptize Gaius. And he, became, he later becomes a very dear friend of Paul and John, the disciple John. He actually addresses the third, his third letter, the third, you know, third John, to Gaius. And Gaius becomes a Christian here in Derby. And then they return. The return trip to Antioch. Now we're not told how long this trip took. It could have been a few, maybe a few weeks or even a few months. But it seems short from the account of Scripture that it takes up, because it takes up you know, less than a paragraph. Um, short and sweet journey back maybe a day or two at each location, maybe a week at the most. But as well, the, the people are still trying to kill him in, in Lystra. So he probably didn't stick around for too long. 
He just wanted to stop by and make sure to really, really hone in and make sure that they were set. And not only that, but to give them <coughs> elders to lay hands on and establish leadership and, and trust people to guide them. And what did he say? He urged them to remain in the faith. These people had switched over from paganism or or staunch Judaism to belief in Jesus Christ and Yeshua HaMashiach as God Himself that came in the flesh, died on the cross, was buried in the tomb, rose from the dead so that they can have their sins forgiven and be given the Holy Spirit. Be given the free gift of the Holy Spirit. Endure in that. Stay faithful to Jesus and to one another. Endure together. The faith is, is the community of the faith. It's not just the, like I said, the me and Jesus. It's the we and Jesus. We get to encounter the presence of God individually and collectively. And we get to experience the presence of God most effectively and most powerfully together. We are better together as the church. What do you say? Strengthening the hearts of the disciples. That's the community. Paul's missionary strategy wasn't just going and saving this guy, saving this girl, saving this guy, saving this girl. And then, you good? Great. You good? Awesome. You good? Wonderful. Sweet. Live your lives. He said, all right, cool. You're, you're great. You come to faith in Jesus. Let me introduce you to my family. And he builds the family so that they can encourage and build one another up in love, as it says in Ephesians 4. To encourage one another, what? To endure. Endure. Remain in the faith. Press on. Stay faithful. Paul's missionary strategy were people movements. Community movements. And community movements transformed communities. Peter Wagner says, uh, an indispensable part of people movement strategy is post-baptismal care. It amazes me, as (coughs) as I've talked to different pastors over the years, just how little follow-up there is. It's like, yeah, you're saved. Now just come and worship with us on Sunday mornings. But there's no discipleship. There's no raising them to understand even how to read this, how to understand this, and what to do with their faith. What do I do with this? How do I express my faith? Do I just come in, sit down in a seat, and listen to, you know, sing some songs and and worship, and then eat some crackers or some pita bread? It's about faith in Jesus and love for one another. And raising people up to know how to minister one to another. Raising people, equipping the saints for the work of ministry, as he says again in Ephesians chapter 4. But the work, we want, we want every single person in the church to know what the work is that we have been commended to. So what is that? What is the work that we have been commended to? Well, first a reminder of <coughs> the... Early church was non-denominational. <laughs> this was before the, the, the movements of denominations. They, they laid hands on people and elders and what? Released them from their authority. 
This wasn't the like building a hierarchy of a hierarchical church of pope, you know, cardinals, bishops, you know, archbishops, bishops, and then priests and and peons, right? This distinction between laity and clergy, these two castes. I hate that distinction. There is no distinction. Show no partiality. That's something that Paul harks on all the time. Call no one father. Why are we calling people father? I'm, it's not. He wasn't Apostle Paul. He was Paul called to be an apostle. It's a place that it's it's a role, not a title. It's not it's not Pastor Allen as though it's a title. It is a role that I play and I fulfill within the church, within the life of the church. The shepherd, the elders, the elders are the the people in the church who are who the church entrusts themselves to. They're not the authoritative what we say goes. It's the how can we serve and how can we minister and do and make sure that the church is being cared for, that the church is growing, that you are growing in your faith, that you are being taken care of. We are servants, not not lords. We lead, but we don't we're not authoritative with that leadership because I've been in those cultures and and structures where it's been very toxic because the leadership didn't realize that was their position were servants, not authoritative dictators over the church. Thus saith me, the pastor, thus saith us, the board of elders, master pastor, (laughs) But also, you know, structure-wise, you know, like we are a part of the, the Mission Northwest as a, as a denomination. We, are, we voluntarily choose to be a part of a group of churches that, you know, to do things to, you know, together. <coughs> That's where denominations came from, is the desire to do ministry and to help one another to do ministry across areas, across regions. And so we are part of the Mission Northwest. It used to be called the American Baptist Churches of the Northwest. So we're traditionally, historically, American Baptist, right? Which we're still a part of the Mission Northwest. I just went to leadership tune-up a, a couple weeks ago with Bryce on our motorcycles, right? And we also, and Temple Hills is part of the Mission Northwest here in Montana. You know, it's how we have access to go and be a part of the ministries at Temple Hills. I'm on the board. And I'm president of the Big Sky area. Yes, you have. <laughs> I'll give you my blessing. <laughs> but, but we're also uh, we're also in the process of joining another network called the Advance Network. Um, it's 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 a, and this part of this network is churches like C3 down the road, Abundant Life down on Huffine, and also Church for the City out in Billings, a City Church out in Cal- in, Mil- in uh, Missoula, Hope Church up in Kalispell. Um, New City Church up in Great Falls. Like, there's a network of churches that are like-minded that we're that we have that we are joining, um, called Advance Network, uh, that does a conference. And I want to make this make sure you know write this down. March chapter chapter <laughs> March 14th through 15th. Mar- write down these dates. March 14th and 15th. Um, it's a it's a network of churches that are like-minded in the way that they express worship and and church life. And I feel like is very much a part of is is who we are and where we are going. 
and what God, God has called us to do. And so that is going to be the advanced conference. And I want anyone and everyone who can go from Shift Church to come. Because it, it, is, it is, I think, vital for us to, to know the culture and where we're going together and to see other people who are already stepped, have already stepped into that avenue before us and where we are going. And so <clears throat> you want to be a part of that. So advanced conference, uh, March 14th through 15th. I've been going since 2021 and my family has been going these last couple of years, 2022 and 2023. And they put on a great conference. It's just coming together to, you know, churches coming together to celebrate what God is doing be encouraged in the spirit, worship together, learn some new things at a conference through like breakouts and stuff, but then to be released and empowered and commended to the ministry in their own cities. That's what, that's the purpose of the network. Is that going to be at Hill? No, it's going to be out at uh, church for the city in Billings. Church. Yeah. Church for the city out in Billings. And then we could take the van and do like a, a caravan or a carpool or something like that out there uh, for that conference. But uh, so, <laughs> but as well, it also helps to keep our own vision and, and what, you know, the work that God has commended us as Shift Church to do. And this is, where, this is why I wrote down our vision right there on your paper. But here it is, that our vision, the reason why we, Shift Church, exist is our vision at Shift is to execute an intentional, relationally driven strategy for causing personal spiritual transformation so that together we can accomplish the work that God has given us to do. We have a vision so that we know what and where and how, and most importantly, why we do what we do and why we exist as a church. What is our purpose? What is the work that God has called us to do, called us to accomplish? What, how do we accomplish those things? We don't simply want to rant, do, do random things like throwing spaghetti at the wall and figuring out what sticks. You know, we've got, we try to go away from just doing random ministry to being very intentional with what we do and how we do it. We want to focus our attention. <coughs> you know, the reason why we've done all this is because we want to focus our attention and our energy, our money, and most importantly, our time to doing things that matter and are focused in going a single direction. Instead of all of us going, right? Have you seen you know, how horses um, tow or you know, pull the, the Wells Fargo wagon? Right, you see this team of horses, right? Do you see like four of them going like that and they're like dragging it through like this? You see them all going the same direction. And that's what, it, that's what the vision does for us is it keeps all of us going the same direction because there's power in that synergy. I always use the illustration of the horse. You know, a horse can carry, can, can you know, pull 8,000 pounds. You know how much two horses can, can haul? 24,000 pounds. They can carry three times what they can carry alone just with one other person. Imagine that times four, times five, times us. Synergy. Going the same direction. Why? Because we want to endure. He said, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We want to endure. We don't want the gates of hell to prevail against us. We don't want the gates of ourselves 
to be able to prevail against the church, to prevail against what God is doing. We engage the process. We do the hard things. We have patience. We endure and encourage one another to endure, not simply just as a church, but as saints. Enduring in our faith, enduring the hardships, enduring the persecutions, enduring the disappointments, the difficulties. We endure so that we remain in God's love and the joy of the Spirit. That's our, that's our call as the church. So what does it look like for us to endure today? Like I was talking to, <laughs> talking to Darren about before we started this morning, I know of two churches just in this valley, as well as a few others outside this area like Butte, who have just recently closed their doors. Some that are about to close their doors, very close to it, and a few who are being forced out of their buildings. There's like four in this valley, churches that I know, very prominent churches that are being forced out of their buildings. Or they're being rent, you know, or they're being pushed out by them raising the rent so high that they can't afford to anymore. They didn't endure. Some let politics, control, and human tradition keep them in a place of being unfruitful. My way, my thoughts, my traditions, my, 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 my. Some forgot why they existed and simply dwindled because there wasn't even a reason for their existence. Others are clinging to religion and religious tradition, many of which are shame-based and shame-driven. And people are just sick of it. They're like, I don't want any part of that garbage. That's not the gospel. The gospel to me is freedom. Not law. Not shame. Not guilt. Still others are bowing to culture. Trying to be cool and relevant. But people are waking up to the fact that they that her churches like that are hollow. Without human connection and biblical value, honestly. They've de- de-Christianized their faith so much that there's nothing Christian left about their gathering at all. They quote Gandhi more than they do Jesus. The church in the first century, as we still, as we should still do today, found their hope in that the gospel was better than all the worthless things in the world had to offer. Like we talked about last week. That was Paul's call to them was turn away from these worthless things. That's still what we do today is we turn away from the worthless things to what truly brings life. Because the church, the local churches, should be the outposts of glory and joy and hope and purpose and truth and life in this world. He said, today, there are so many Christians that try to to show the world just truly how cool and still like the world they can be so that they can avoid being considered weird and off-putting.
rather than saying, yeah, we're different. And our ways are different. But that's why our lives are awesome. They're not perfect. They're a struggle. But I have hope and I have purpose. I have life. I have grace. I have joy because of Jesus Christ and my brothers and sisters in the church. Our lives are a testimony of how good our God is. Even though we su- these, that we suffer, so everyone suffers. There's not a single person that gets out of this life without suffering. But how do we suffer? How do we mourn? How do we celebrate? Do we celebrate by going and getting drunk and ruining our lives because we're celebrating? Yes, you go and get drunk because you're celebrating a wedding and then you go home and kill someone on the way home. That's horrible. I just read a story about that last week. We live different lives. We live lives that are weird, but they're also intriguing because they're so good. It doesn't matter if you think that we're weird and that you find it strange that we don't join you in the very things we believe bring death and destruction to your life. We find the things that you value to be worthless because God is so much better. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 4. Since therefore, therefore since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. We suffer in this world. We struggle. We wrestle with people's opinions of us. Why? Because we've been, we're finished with that garbage. We're finished with it. It's done. In order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles chose to choose to do. Carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living. And they slander you. They mock you, right? They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. They're surprised that you don't join them. Why? Because what we believe and how we live is weird. Get used to being weird. Like I've told, I've preached in the past several times, and I'm going to preach it again. Be weird. You have permission to be weird, to be thought of as weird, as odd, as stupid. Our behavior in this life should intrigue people to the goodies of Jesus, but not be repellent. Though it will repel, because it's weird. Through it all, though, we need to love and share God's love with others. And Jesus even says this in, his, in the Gospel of John. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you. They may not outwardly like, you know, oppress you, but they might you know, just not invite you. You may be uninvited to their wedding, maybe uninvited to their Thanksgiving, uninvited to Christmas. And that's still suffering because that's excluding you. I think that that word right there needs to be embedded in our hearts, knowing that we will also be excluded. Insult you and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. It's Jesus. Ah, 
Here's the second part of it. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the false prophets who wanted to suck up to them so much to get favor, to get acceptance, to not be weird, but to be wanted, to be loved, to be liked. So they just didn't say anything. Or they said the opposite of what was true. They act opposite. Now, here's the thing, yes. We don't need to be offensive. You know, through our lives, because our lives and our message are, gonna, are going to naturally offend, but we don't need to be offensive on top of it. We need to get used to being called every name in the book, though. And I, wanna, here, here's the, I want you guys to settle into this. this is, I'm going to wrap up our time with this. We need to get used to being called every name in the book. We need to say, thank you. Or, can you explain that to me? Or, just be okay with being called and say, God bless you, have a good day. Things like bigot. Well, what is a bigot? What is a bigot actually? An actual bigot is a person who is obstinately devoted to their own beliefs. You're a bigot. Thank you. I'm obstinately devoted to Jesus Christ. So call me a bigot all you want. Sure, I'm a bigot. Great. Thank you. Praise be to God that you noticed that I'm faithful to my God. That I am unequivocally unmoved by your threats. Thank you for calling me a bigot. Have a good day, sir. (laughs) But not an A, oh, we'll pray for you. Fill in the blank, homo, trans, pedo, etc., phobe. Be okay with being called a homophobe or a transphobe or where we are going, it will come to this in the years to come, if not the months. It's already happening. Be okay with being called a pedophobe. It's coming. That's the next trans movement. Pedophobe. It is the next movement. Mark my words. I don't don't say that to get you all afraid or or angry. don't, don't, Don't think that way. I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to rile us up. I'm trying to rile us down. Simply because we know that it's not according to God's creation. Homosexuality is not the way that God created humanity to be. Transgender is not the way that God created humanity to be. Pedophilia is not the way that God created humanity to be. But they call us phobes. Fear as though we fear it. But really it's, an, it's a rejection of identity as you know, is interpreted. Because when, I'm sorry, when we reject them, when we reject their statements of identity, it's interpreted as a rejection of their whole person. Because they identify the entirety of their being by their sexual orientation. Whereas God always looks and says it's the character of the heart. Hater, being called a hater, or what we speak and what we preach, even the whole thing I just said for the last few minutes, calling all of that hate speech. That saying that 
homosexuals and transgender people are not living according to the God's creation and they need to, you know, they need to allow God to transform their lives. That is known as hate speech. In England, I can be put in prison. In several places around the world, around the world, that could be considered hate speech. It's probably going to be on the archives now for, you know, and I'll get arrested in a couple of years. But what I'm saying is, and I'm, like I said, I'm not trying to be a sensationist, or a sensational, sensationalist. But basically, like to see that people, when they hear anything that disagrees with my ideology, they say, "You hate me." When you disagree with them, it makes me feel less, or doesn't agree with my narrative. It's hate speech. You're a hater. Now, here's the: don't actually be hateful. Don't actually be vindictive in the way that you speak to people. We treat people as people made in the image and likeness of God. If they're not in Christ, they're broken. It doesn't matter what their brokenness is. Love them as God loves them. Love them as Jesus loved each person. He, he approached each one of them as an image bearer of God himself. Don't be hateful. Be loving. And what does it mean? Steadfastly devoted to their good and flourishing. Steadfastly devoted to their godliness. To their salvation. Another one would be intolerant. You are bigoted. Here's another word. You are bigoted, narrow-minded, or non-liberal. Dogmatic, or rigid, unwavering. To be intolerant in this day is to have a disagreement and be unwilling to change your mind. That's what intolerant means today. Ignorant. If you only knew the things that we knew, had the knowledge and belief, re-education, that we do, you would be a good person. That's what ignorant now means. That we don't believe or have the same understanding of the same issue. So we're intolerant or ignorant. We're ignorant. We're less informed than this person because we have different knowledge. We need to not be offensive, like I said. Like I said, though our lives and message will naturally offend. Love is always inviting, not judging or condemning. Love is always patient. It doesn't get hurried when we're not seeing the results right away. Love is kind. It doesn't slander and mock or ridicule others. I need to say that one again for all of us. For what we share on Instagram, for what we comment on videos, for what videos we share as representations of our opinions, we should not ever mock or slander or ridicule outsiders. That has become so vogue in our culture today to mock and make fun of people in the world because they're outside of the faith. Is that going to make them want Jesus? No. Heck no. H-E double hockey sticks? No. Heavens to Betsy? No. Love does not envy, is not boastful, not arrogant, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not irritable, it does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. 
It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love endures. Verse 22, we must enter the kingdom of God through many persecutions. Paul understood that. Paul understood that it was not going to be easy to press through this world. To be faithful to the Lord Jesus. To, be, to not try to be offensive to the world, but knowing the gospel message was going to be offensive, but to love people in the, as image bearers of Christ anyway. But we must remember how to be kind to people in the midst of receiving wrath. We need to be kind and loving to people in the midst of receiving their vitriol. Yet still able to stand firm in our faith and stand upon the Word of God. To be faithful to Christ. To be faithful to Jesus. The church has always rejected the world's beliefs and practices around worship and sexuality, as well as many other identities, orientations, ethics, virtues, morals, right? But we ought not reject the people that Jesus wants to radically transform. Because we exist, as a reminder, to encourage endurance through persecutions and disappointments, to remain in God's love and the joy of the Spirit. Jesus, we thank you for the church. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that you sent when you went back into your kingdom, Lord, back into heaven. That you sent the Holy Spirit to be with us, to be your presence with us, Lord God. That we have the Spirit of Yahweh dwelling within us and among us. You are here, Lord. God, I I pray that you would reveal that to us. Reveal your presence to us on a daily and weekly basis, on a monthly basis. Lord, that you would help us to remain faithful to you. That we would remain in you, abide in you as you abide in us. Lord, that you would dwell within the very way that we have fellowship with one another to give and to breathe life into each other by your Holy Spirit. That we would be praying for and praying over one another, praying upon one another, lifting each other up in prayer, lifting each other up in our words. Lord, that you would be living and active among us every single day so that your church will build it, would build itself up every single day more and more, more and more, more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, that you would build up the church in love every single day. Show us, Lord Jesus, the things that you want us to do. Show us the work that you desire for us to accomplish here at Shift Church, here in Belgrade and Bozeman in this entire region, here in the state of Montana. And Lord, we thank you for your presence with us. And uh, God, I pray that you guide this time of discussion and communion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.